Good morning, everybody. Did our uh, Thanksgiving table throw you off when you came in today? You may have identified a stronghold in your life that you need to pray that the Lord will release you from, right? No, I'm just kidding. Um, so we got our little Thanksgiving table here. Uh, I was thinking about it. Um, so we set up our Thanksgiving table at home this week, and we um, covered it with a tablecloth that my mom had given us. And then we put out the relish tray that was sort of mirrored the same relish tray that Ann's grandma had always made. And then we sit around it, um, and each person that sits around it is this, like, I don't know, collection of stories and experiences, and, and we all sort of bring all of that to the, t- the table. And it hit me that, like, as a metaphor, the, the table is the place where we are reminded of who we are and whose we are, like the, who, who we belong to. Um, and that that's why I think uh, when we gather together for this meal, um, we're reminded of that same thing. Um, but we, there's a lot of stuff going on in here because that idea of a family around a table being a space where we're reminded who we are and to whom we belong has been kind of the theme of our family nights this fall. Um, and so I kind of wanted to like recap what all this is and, and why it's there. So our very first family night uh, we started with this idea that we wanted to look back at the way that God has been active and present in our lives and in the life of our church. And so uh, you see these rocks here. These aren't just decorative. So what we did was we started by looking at the story from Joshua chapter 4, when uh, at the very end of that whole journey through the wilderness as they're headed to the promised land, um, Joshua leads the people across the Jordan River on dry land. This is the second time that's happened. So leads them across the Jordan River on dry land. And they get through, and then God says, uh, take 12 guys, go back out into the dry riverbed and pick up a stone and come back to the, to the Canaan side of the river and set up a little monument of these stones. And the reason you're supposed to do that is because now from generations on, when your kids are like, what are these stones for? You get to tell them the story. You get to tell them the story of how God was faithful and delivered you from Egypt and brought you through the wilderness, through the dry land, and brought you to this place of promise. And so that's what these stones are. This is, that's what we did that first night was we, we all individually took time to think about how God has led us along the way, always been faithful to guide and protect. Then we went outside and stole some landscaping. And each of us sort of uh, attributed a singular moment in our lives to one of these rocks. So what you're looking at here is the story of God's faithfulness to the people of this church over generations. That's what these rocks represent. So that first night we were kind of looking back. The second night we were looking around for how God was at work, meaning kind of in the present day. In, when Jesus teaches the disciples to pray and, and gives them the Lord's Prayer, that idea of praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is this idea of saying that when we pray, we are actively anticipating that God will be at work now in our everyday life, that we don't want to forget that. And so you see scattered around here these prayers, and specifically on these doors, we have all of our community partners, because that night what we did was we gathered and we prayed in kind of an anticipatory way. We, we prayed knowing that God is at work around us right now and praying that God would bring his kingdom to bear here on the south side and in the lives of all the different people. That's what these maps are for. 
as well. They're little pushpins of where we live because we prayed that God would bring his kingdom to those places as well. So we were looking around. And then the most recent one, the one that we did just a couple of weeks ago, was this idea of then looking forward and just setting our hopes on how God will continue to be active and present and faithful. So we looked back, around, and then forward to the end of the very, uh, the very end of the story of Scripture uh, in Revelation. We get this picture of God having made everything right. Everything that's been wrong has been set right. All the brokenness has been mended. And so what we did was we gave everyone kind of a, a picture frame with the Revelation uh, passage there, and we invited people to dream God's dream with him. To say, if God's making everything right, this is what I think that would look like. This is what I think that would be like. So we're sort of training our hopes, which is what we're going to start doing a lot next week when we enter into our Advent series, but we'll, we'll get there. And so what you have all around are these pictures of, of people in this church, their vision of what it looks like to see everything made right and new and good again. Uh, and we did all of this because this is our family story. Right? This collectively is our family story to remind us who we are and whose we are and who we belong to. This is an important piece. What I want you to do is hold these things in our hearts as we're thinking about the, the text for this morning because this really gets at what we're, what we're trying to talk about this morning. The last, this whole fall, we've, we've been trying to discipline ourselves along this line. When we first started in September, we, we did a series called Now What? You get, remember, anybody remember that? Please say remember that. I put some work into it. <laughs> what we were doing is we were looking at the story of Israel wandering in the wilderness and asking what does it mean to be a people in transition. And then we've pivoted then to thinking about these psalms of saying, you know, if, if God is active and if God is present, then how do we recognize that in our day-to-day -day lives? How do we align ourselves with the God who is speaking and drawing us into a relationship with Him? And how, how do we do those kinds of things? So those have been the two uh, series we've done this fall, and we're wrapping up the Psalms series today. What I want to do, if it's okay, is kind of mash up both of those series and do kind of the now what uh, reprise and this common prayer uh, ending together. Because what I want to do, we're going to look at Psalm 95 in just a little bit. It's a, it's a famous psalm of thanksgiving. Uh, but the psalm itself references Israel's journey in the wilderness on the way from captivity to the promised land. So what I want to do is kind of bring both of these things together. Uh, but to get to Psalm 95, I want us to look at that moment that the psalmist talks about so that we really understand what's happening when we get there. So to do that, we're going to go to Exodus 17. Um, you, I'm going to situate it again. Remember, so they'd been for 400 years, they'd been captives in Israel or in Egypt. They'd been slaves. But then think about what they'd seen, right? They'd, they'd watched God um, do the plagues, and they'd been protected from it. They'd been set free. They'd been delivered from Pharaoh's army. They've walked through the Red Sea. They've had bread fall from the sky, all these kinds of things happening. So this is all of that going on, but now we find ourselves in Exodus 17, and I'll read this here. It said, The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded him. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses, and they said, Give us water to drink. 
And Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. And they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Does that sound familiar to the, the, the same story about food? You brought us out here to die, to starve us to death. And then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're ready to stone me. That is also what Moses said when it, it was time to eat and his kids were making his life miserable. And the Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. And I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb and strike that rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Masa, which means testing, and Marabah, which means quarreling, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? So that's really the question that I want us to think about here. Is the Lord among us or not? If you think about that question, it is a weird question for them to be asking, right? We just sort of did the Rolodex of all the things that they had seen. They had been set free. They had watched these incredible plagues of judgment on Egypt, and they'd been spared from it. Water parted, and they walk on dry land. They've seen bread fall from the sky. And they ask the question, is the Lord among us or not? See, Israel's not asking it in like, a, um, like an innocent, soul-searching kind of way. It's not like, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. It's not that at all. This is kind of this like, Israel has this posture all the way through their journey in the Old Testament. It is a kind of an antagonistic indifference. Is, is the Lord really among us or not? Right? They've already sort of presumed that God is gone. And by, you know, I think that that's kind of the way the world works. The world kind of operates by that idea. Is the Lord among us? And asking the question in like, acknowledging the fact that we don't really think God is, is here. We looked at this when we looked at Psalm 73, right? When the psalmist is looking around at all these people that are getting ahead and, and he can't make heads or tails of it, and he says, look at what all these people say. God doesn't know what we do, so we can do whatever we want, right? That's just how the world works. Look, God's not here. What are we talking about? God's not here. We do what we want. That's what Israel is doing there. It's also kind of the question that Satan asks Adam and Eve in the garden. What Satan says to Adam and Eve is a little bit different than that, but he's, remember the, the serpent says, did God really say? Did God really say that? And, and, it, and the reason I say it's the same question is because that idea of did God really say, because if, if Satan can get Adam and Eve to doubt what God has said, then he can get Adam and Eve to doubt that God is good, which is exactly what he does. Did God really say you can't have that tree? Because this is what God's just trying to keep you from having the good life. And if he can get Adam and Eve to doubt that God is good, then uh, he can get Adam and Eve to doubt that God is really even there at all. It's a really short commute from did God really say to is God even here? Is the Lord among us or not? This is the question that I, that I really want to drill down on. Because... <clears throat> Israel just watches water spring from a rock 
and they can ask the question, is God here? Like, if, if it's not God who's doing that, then what made the water come from the rock? What made the water come from the rock? Was it just like a coincidence kind of thing? Like, right place at the right time, like, hey, pretty awesome we found this rock that was full of water, and then we hit it, and then the water came out. Like, that's a nice little coincidence, right? Clive was in first service. I asked him, apparently rocks don't normally do that. Um, so it was fortuitous uh, that they were there, right? This <clears throat> coincidental provision. Sometimes if we're asking that question, is the Lord among us or not, it sort of push us into this place where uh, God at work starts to feel more like coincidence, just the natural outworking of events. It's not God at work, it's just Tuesday. But the other thing is, they all watched Moses hit that rock, right? And they could tempt themselves into believing that it was just because they had this one strong, powerful leader that they could look at and point to him like, oh no, he's the guy that did it. It wasn't God at work, it was Moses at work. Either way, they've forgotten all of the ways in which God has been faithful through the generations, and they've gotten to a place where God's work looks like coincidence or, you know, a good chief executive. Is God among us or not? Creates this kind of angry indifference to God's presence in our lives. And I have not looked at my notes one time. I got to, just a second, sorry. I don't know where I am. That's really the question that I want us to ask uh, for Living Stones as we sort of bring both these series together and mash them up here at the end of the fall. So like Living Stones, when we look back at the story of our church, um, is, is the Lord among us or not? The alternative there is that it was, you know, just a strong, powerful leader that did everything, or it was coincidence and a nice turning of events that did everything, or maybe it was God at work. When we look around today, is it God who is at work, or is it just like right place, right time, or is it a strong, powerful leader? It's not. (laughs) Or is it God at work? And when we think about our future, Um, the future of this church. Where are we putting our hope? Like, hopefully things will turn out, right? It'll it'll all work itself out. Or, hopefully we'll find that one strong, powerful leader that will lead us to the promised land. Or, are we putting our hopes in the fact that God has been at work and the evidence of it is up all over this room? Here's the problem. When, when, When a person falls into the pattern of believing that God's work is just coincidence or something they've done on their own, right? Like if the water from the rock starts to feel like Tuesday or something I accomplished of my own hand, what that does is it starts to harden our hearts toward God, right? It it sort of creates some amount of cold uh, distance from God. Um, Like... Has anybody ever, anybody ever experienced that? Some, the feeling of being distant from God or being cold toward God? I mean, I'll raise my hand on that for sure. Um, I'd wager that in the moments where we felt a little cold toward God, um, 
it's likely not that that happened because of some like monumental event. It's probably more likely that it was just that slow creep towards self-sufficiency, toward believing that the water from the rock just came or, or the water from the rock came because I could accomplish it myself. There's a tendency, I think, in all of us to just coast through life without acknowledging God's presence so that things look like normal coincidence more than any kind of tangibly present God. And what I'm saying is that's not something you have to try to do, right? When you say it out loud, the idea of taking credit for God's work, like, oh, I did this, I accomplished this thing, sounds sort of monumentally arrogant. And I suppose it is, but it's not something that comes uh, because we are trying to be monumentally arrogant. It's something that comes slowly over time by failing to recognize God at work. That that coldness of heart is something we sort of drift toward. It's a posture that will harden our heart. Not just uh, casual indifference, but can become kind of an antagonistic indifference, like Israel in the desert. Is God even here? Did God really say, is God among us or not? Because he's probably not. So the question for me this morning is, how do we resist that? How do we resist our hearts getting hard? Um, how do we hold back the urge to give credit to coincidence or to have confidence in what we can bring about on our own rather than to acknowledge that God is at work? That's where we get to Psalm 95. And I'm halfway through and just finished my intro, so let's move. Psalm 95. We said all of that to set up this because it, the psalmist brings this whole story to bear in this psalm, so it's not going to make sense if we don't. So Psalm 95 says this, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song because the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his because he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So come and let us worship. Bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me even though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, there are people whose hearts go astray and they haven't known my ways. And so I declared on oath in my anger, they will never enter my rest. So we're going to look at this whole psalm, but I want to start with verse 8. I want to start with verse 8 because this was the part that landed with me like a ton of bricks. Just there at the end of verse 7, it says, if only you would hear his voice, and then this is God speaking, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness. This is why it's hard for me to hear because what the psalmist is saying is that the, the hardness of our heart is our responsibility. The hardness of our heart is our responsibility. 
It's hard for me to hear because I've experienced significant seasons of life with this kind of hard-heartedness that the psalmist is talking about. Times where, as the psalmist says, I could not hear from God because my heart was so cold. And during that season, there was no way that you could have convinced me that that was my fault. No chance, right? That was not my issue. It was God's issue. It was the church's issue. It was my circumstances issue. It was my mental health issue. It was my employer's issue. You get what I'm saying, right? Like finding every possible place to attribute the hardness of my heart, but I never let it land on me. But what Psalm 95 is saying is that the hardening of our heart, do not harden your hearts. That is an active sentence, and the active agent in that sentence is all of us. But the good news is, the psalmist says that if you can hear God speaking to you, it means that your heart's not too hard yet. That you can still turn and respond. If you can hear God speaking through his spirit and through the word and among his people, then the good news is it's not too late. And the good news that we remember from Psalm 19 is that God is always speaking. God is always speaking and we can always hear it. And so it is not too late to resist the hardening of our heart. But it does suggest here that the state of our heart is something we have responsibility for. On our own. Choosing a hardened heart means that we're choosing a path of angry indifference, of choosing to credit coincidence or our own hands when the water flows from the rock. And we can make that choice, but if we do, the psalmist says, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like you did in Meribah and Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me and tried me, even though they saw what I had done. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, there are people whose hearts go astray. They don't know my ways, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So the great tragedy, of course, uh, of this whole Israel wandering in the wilderness story is that their hearts grow so cold and so hard towards God that they actually all wander until they die in the desert. Not a single person who was delivered from Egypt makes it to the promised land. Save maybe Joshua. They all die. In fact, uh, Moses... Uh, in numbers, the same situation comes up. They're all thirsty again. And God says, okay, well, let's do this again. I want you this time to go over to that rock over there and just speak to it, and water is going to pour forth. But you know what Moses does? He thinks, last time I hit this with a stick. So he grabs that same stick, and he goes over, and he whacks the rock, and water pours out of it. But you see what he did, right? He began to believe that he was the one that brought the water from the rock. He didn't trust God to do what God said he was going to do. And that's the moment where God tells Moses, you don't get to go to the promised land because you've believed you are the one bringing water from the rock. Even Moses' heart grows cold and hardened. And the psalmist is saying, do not let that happen. 
Do not let that happen. So we resist that by doing what the psalmist says at the very beginning of the psalm. Verse 1, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let's shout aloud to the rock of our salvation and come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song because the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his because he made it and his hands form the dry land and so let us bow down in worship and kneel before the Lord our maker. He is our God, we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. I think the way that we resist the hardening of our hearts is by choosing to see God's hand in our lives and then orienting our life around thanks, thankfulness and trust. But that is a choice. We can choose to see God's hand at work in our lives, and then being thankful and trusting that God will continue to do that, which is what God wanted from Israel the entire time. Or we can be like, you know what? I did all this on my own. This is just the natural course of events. And we can choose to go this way. But the way that we resist this, which leads to the hardening of our hearts such that we can't even hear from God, is to choose to see God at work. I want you to notice a couple of things here in verse 1. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord and shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that in a song where the psalmist is referencing the water from the rock, that he refers to God as the rock of our salvation. You, like, it may, may feel like you are all alone in this thing. It may feel like you're about to die from thirst in a desert. But the water that saves you doesn't come from your own hand and it doesn't come from coincidence. It comes from God who is the rock of our salvation. That's the choice we have every day. To choose to see life this way. And that's hard because we live in a world that sees that choice as being super naive or not very enlightened. It's very uncosmopolitan to believe that God is at work in the world. But unless we do, I don't think we can be God's faithful people. Our hearts will grow cold if we don't. You know, he's, he's drawing this illusion to Israel in the desert, thinking they're dying of thirst. And I can't help but think that the psalmist makes the choice on purpose then in verse 7 to contrast this experience of feeling like you're in the desert out on your own, dying on the vine, with verse 7, which says this. He's our God, and we're the people, not in the desert, but the people in the pasture and the flock under his care. Think about what it would change in your day-to-day life if you knew that you knew that you knew that you aren't out on your own in a desert dying of thirst, but that you live every day in the green pastures of God and God's delight over you. And that there is water enough for you and all there. We can resist that sort of angry indifference that can creep in by forgetting that God is present in, in our lives, by choosing to see that the space we occupy in the world is a place where God watches and guides and protects and leads like a shepherd does for the sheep. To trust what Jesus says, that he is a good shepherd that can be trusted, 
an enduring friend who would lay down his life for us rather than see any of us killed, stolen, destroyed by an enemy who lies in wait. But that is a choice you have to make every day. We don't make that choice. We start wandering this way. My friend Kevin wrote a book called Choose and Choose Again, The Brave Act of Returning to God's Love. And I think that is a way of framing it in the positive. You know, the psalmist says, don't harden your hearts. If you frame that in the positive, you could say, every day, choose and choose again to see God's love and care for you. In the world that we live in, that is actually a fairly brave act, (laughs) to choose to see God at work, to see God present, and to see God's care. That's how we stave off the hard heart. That's the alternative That's what Psalm 95 gives us, at least a first step. The heart that sees God's hand at work that can say, so then I will sing for joy to the Lord because he is the one that saves me. I can bow down and worship because I know that I am living every day in the green pastures of God. And it would be easy to think that when you look at a psalm like this, uh, that that it's just an invitation to us when we gather in spaces like this. Right? These are easy verses to quote at the start of a service. But I, but I think that it's this like daily, morning-by-morning morning kind of invitation for us. The invitation to sing for joy and to shout aloud and to enter with thanksgiving. That is a way of life. I'm, one I'm learning in fits and starts, to be sure. It's a, it's a, but it is a way of life. And it is a way of life that can resist the hardened heart of Israel in the desert. It's a way of life that can look back and see God at work. It's a way of life that can look around and see God at work. It's a way of life that can look forward and put our hope in the God who has been at work, that he will continue to be at work. That's what all of these things are, little artifacts of our spiritual discipline, of training ourselves to see God's hand and to trust it going forward. The reminder of who we are, whose we are, and the people we belong to. What I'd like to do before the worship team comes up is actually just spend some time together as a church praying, uh, thanking God uh, for the ways that he's been present past, now, and in the future the way that he's shown love and care. That's not something we've done since I've been here, a bit of an experiment. I believe in all of us that we can do something like this where we will just go to prayer. I would invite you to speak loudly enough for us all to be able to praise God alongside of you and maybe briefly enough so that others can uh, get a turn too. Let's spend a little time praying uh, to the God who is the rock of our salvation.
God, we want to hear your voice. We don't want our hearts to be hard. And so even as we try to choose to see you at work and present in our lives, um, it, we also have to confess that everything in us and everything in our world is pulling us in the other direction, and so we can't do it on our own. Um, we trust that because you are always speaking, that you're not trying to hide such that if we would just crane our ear to listen, that you would help to soften our hearts so that we can align our lives with you as we walk through the day-to-day. So we do give you thanks, recognizing that you are the source of everything good and true and beautiful, uh, that we can be thankful uh, even in the midst of struggle uh, because we know that we are never far from your care, that we're never out from under the shadow of your wing. And so we get to live in the world as people who claim the rock of our salvation. We are grateful. It's your name we pray. Amen.